the second edition. Please hang up and try again. in Texas, the second episode. I want to thank everybody for uh, logging in tonight and taking the time to be with us. Uh, again, uh, be joined by my friend, Andrew Moxigemba. I kind of got a really good show lined up for this evening. Still trying to iron the kinks out, uh, get you guys some content that uh, really captivates you, learn something from, and so on and so forth. So, uh, Tonight we're going to be looking at getting a couple of fishing reports in. Got some. Uh, I got a friend calling in. His name's Clint Barkey. He's a, one of the best coastal anglers that I know. Really renowned for catching big trout in the wintertime and some stud redfish in the summertime. And he really likes to kayak and fish tournaments, uh, but mainly fish against the boaters from his kayak. So that'll be pretty interesting. And then later on the show, we've got a very good friend of ours. His name is Jeff Herman. He's a Jackson Kayak Pro Staffer, as well as a Pro Staffer for Werner Paddles. He's going to call in and give us some feedback on, uh, you know, being a Jackson team member, some winter fishing tips, and also talking about ACA uh, certification for paddling since he is an ACA certified paddler. So hopefully we can learn on to correct our paddling strokes and probably make us more efficient while we're out on the water so we can get to our locations a lot quicker. So, uh, so Andrew, uh, I know you guys down there were, like we discussed last week, you were at the boat show. Uh, you know, show season is probably one of the best times, really, to, for new people to kind of go out and not only get to see a lot of shiny new boats, like power boats, but you also get to go see the growing presence of kayaks at the show events. So it's, uh, it's kind of interesting because you can, you can go see multi, uh, multiple models side by side and of various brands. And what's really nice too is most of the time at the shows is you'll have the presence of the reps of those companies there to at, answer any of those particular questions that you've really got geared towards, uh, say, a particular brand. So uh, I'm... Now, Andrew, I know you guys, uh, you, you had all the, uh, pretty much the main players in the game, Hobie, you know, Native, Ocean Kayak, Wilderness Systems. Um, did you guys see maybe a larger turnout this year than years past and potentially more people turning over to the kayak side from, say, power boating? I, I can't, like, really comment on whether or not they were turning over from power boating, but the crowds are definitely larger this year in Houston. And then uh, the presence of kayaks more than doubled in that show. Um, I think there was a total maybe 8,000 square feet of just kayak space there between the, all the booths. So there were, a, there were a lot of kayaks at the boat show, which is unreal because not that long ago, I mean, there might have been a dozen boats that you, or kayaks you could see there. So it was definitely a larger presence than what was there in the past. That's, that's good. That's good to hear because the more the more the kayak scene is present to those people and they know that they have those or they have the ability to do a lot of what they do in power boats, but in kayaks, it's just going to continue the growth of the sport. And I, I honestly, I get really excited when I see a lot more people getting into kayaking in general. I mean, be it for whatever means, fishing, paddling, whatever, but I really I really like to see the guys come on the fishing side because that's what I like to do. Um, but now you were at the Houston... What's that? I'd say, you know, the other thing, too, is the amount of people that are... You know, it used to be you either were a boater 
or a paddler. Now it's not like that. There's a lot of guys who are there buying boats, then would turn around and buy a kayak to mothership out. So the dynamic's changing for sure. Yeah, that mothership and stuff is getting to be real hot. I see a lot of these coastal guides that particularly were powerboat-oriented to begin with. Now you're starting to see them buy kayaks, get them and throw them on the sides of their center consoles, and when they go out, you know, they'll just go drive down to find, find a fishable area, they'll stake out, pull their boat, and the next thing you know, they're throwing the kayaks to the side and their clients are going paddling around. Uh, a friend of mine, Dustin Lee, he is a, uh, he's a guide down in the sergeant area. Uh, you know, I, I first started fishing with him, you know, several years ago, and I told him I was a kayaker, and, you know, I didn't really ever fish from powerboats, and he was really intrigued by it. And the next thing I know, like, I think it was probably about four or five months ago, I got on Texas Kayak Fisherman, and he's posting up, and he just bought two Jackson Cuda 12s. I couldn't believe it. It was just to see the, the morphing of the mentality of the power boaters to accept kayakers more and more is really kind of cool. Um, that and there, it, if you really think about it, it kind of goes hand in hand. They both, I really enjoy it that way. No, I mean, yeah. I'd rather be paddling than jumping on a boat and waiting. You know, I mean, that. Well, absolutely. is terrible. Right, and just the powerboat gives you a means to, you know, drive your kayak farther to spots where, say, you couldn't paddle to initially, but then all of a sudden you jump out and you launch the kayak, and now you go to where your boat couldn't never go, you know, some marsh back lakes or anything like that. That that's kind of a that's kind of a fun way to kind of look at it. Um, but I do I do get more of a fuel paddling from my origin point to my fishing ground and back. But I digress. But so, but you were at the Houston show, and you know, upcoming in Texas is it. You'll have the Austin boat show coming up soon. You'll have the Belton boat show, San Antonio, and then you start jumping into say, uh, like the Houston Holder fishing show, which gets away from the boating aspect of it, but still has the kayak presence. But it's all gear related stuff, so. But, but shows are really good because I like you can go out and you can get a really good deal on a boat. It's probably the best time of the year to buy, and you're not really losing that much. It's not like buying a computer where you buy the boat, you buy the computer, and then tomorrow it's already outdated. You're you're still right in the middle of the model year, and you've got a pretty much all spring, all summer to paddle those new boats, and you don't got to worry about something coming out and automatically replacing it. Oh, yeah, it's a, it's a place where you can get your hands on stuff before it's out to the public, you know, kind of like that that new um, micro power pole, the micro anchor. Yeah, so uh, we'll be getting those in at Austin Kayak soon, but there's a lot of guys that are getting into it, you know, micro skips and all that, but the kayak scene is really kind of where I want to see this thing develop. Now, you had it in the booth, you know, what were your thoughts on that particular piece? Do you think it's going to translate well into our into the you know what we do? Well, it, it's small enough. That's for sure. I was surprised at the size of it. Then uh, you know the other part I was surprised at too is they're using the same remote they use on the big power pole. So it's not like they they cut corners. It's the same Bluetooth signal they use on the big power pole. So you could program it through your phone and control your your power pole through your phone. Which I mean I don't know if anyone wants to necessarily do that on the water, but I thought that was kind of a cool feature. And then uh, it looks like, too, that a standard stakeout stick might work through the unit as well. So that was surprising. Yeah, that, that's I did I did like that one point of that because, you know, if you don't want an eight-foot stakeout pole for any reason, uh, you've got the ability to use any three-quarter-inch stakeout pole and utilize that as your anchoring device. I, I, I like that a lot because uh, that gives you the ability to use, say, like uh, the Yak Attack's parking poles or even Yak Gear's, uh, their mud anchor. So that's going uh, to be a good one like that. I, I, I think that's going to really kind of, you know, change the way 
people shallow water anchor kayaks. And even though that they really only do it, uh, or they already do it with stakeout poles, but this is going to be automatic. I see tournament guys using a lot. Like, you know, our friend Jason Blackwell, he's already told me he's going to install one on his Mokin 14. And, but I, I, I want to see how they're going to, they're going to, you know, fix the problem of mounting this thing. I already foresee an issue there that potentially, you know, Luther at Yak Attack, I think, is going to try to fix. But I'm, there's not a lot of kayaks that give the, the flat surface area that you can bolt this thing onto very easily or clamp on, you know, if you want to talk about that. Yeah, because it's, about a, it's like a 4-inch by 5-inch mounting square that you need. So well, you're right, there's not a whole lot. Not every boat's going to have that. If you really think about it, the only boat that gives the secure platform right off the right off the bat is the pro angler. So yeah. uh, now on Facebook, if you any of you guys, if any of you people are uh, new to the sport or whatnot, and you just bought a fishing kayak, definitely check out Yak Attack. All right. They're really up to date on getting a lot of stuff. Uh, made for boats, uh, but they're particularly going to be key in getting the micro-anchor established. The, they're making some the mounting brackets that go on the back of the boats that will adapt to pretty much any of the the kayaks that they correlate that that boat will, or that particular anchoring system will work best with. So it's your wider, more uh, narrow, or your wider boats that will give you the standing ability. Mokins, rides, uh, pro angler, you know, well, pro angler's probably not going to need it that much. But, yeah, that's it's definitely going to be worth it uh, to kind of give them a, a chance to see what they can work their magic on. So, we'll see. Uh, kind of cool. Did you do any, did you, even though you were working, I know you were working long hours to show, uh, was there, did you get any, did you get a chance to get any paddling time in? Absolutely not. No. I mean, I sat in a kayak in the booth. That was, that was good. That's about okay. the closest I got. What about yourself? Yeah, I, I got. I didn't do any fishing, but I did paddle. Probably put in about nine miles on Saturday. Uh, we were. I went duck hunting, a solo solo paddling duck hunt, and uh, it's already about two and a half miles to my my spot, anyways. But then I decided to go scouting. So that. That was kind of unique, but in the, in the meantime, though, I did run into a couple of guys while I was out there that I that were crappie fishing, and I've been I've been talking to those guys trying to find out you know the little nuances of the lake and if it's if I've got the ability to go ahead and hunt in the morning and I don't want to go home yet, well I got the ability to go catch some tasty crappie. Well, now I got another activity I can do, so. And they're, what they're saying right now is it's with the lake being as cold as it is, I, I'm, I don't know what any truth is to this because I haven't fished for crappie in a long time, but they say in this colder weather, they start to move up a little bit shallower and get ready to, to spawn. And these guys were fishing some stand-up brush piles and, you know, with marabou crappie jigs and just like almost like a vertical jigging, uh, which was kind of cool. So I'm, I'm definitely going to have to bring out an ultralight, try it out, uh, I don't know, man. It's if I got a chance to bring home some crappie and some duck, I'm, that's a good day. Yeah, I mean, but, uh, you want to go old school? Just take a bamboo rod out there with you, and you know, catch crappie that way. If you're gonna go out there, why not? Yeah, absolutely. So, but now, now last week we, you know, it we touched on a little bit of the cat tournament. Uh, Clint calls in, we might have to bring this over on to the other side of his conversation when he's done and calls in. But now Cats wrapped up their signature or their first event of the season, and they actually brought out a record amount of anglers for the tournament series, which was really, really cool. Uh, they brought out 83 guys, with the majority being in the competitive division, and uh, the winner took home over 1800 bucks because he got 1200 bucks just in winnings, and then he got 550 for big bass. So it shows you that wintertime fishing at Lake Decker and Austin is 
pretty solid right now. So I have to go try that out this next week, kind of bring back a report for everybody. But I'm going to cut I'm gonna cut the cat's talk real quick. Clint's calling in. I really want to get to talk to him because he witnessed probably one of the largest trout that I've ever seen before in my life caught at 32 inches and 11 pounds. So let's get him in here real quick. Clint, how's it going? Jaren, how you doing? Doing good, bro. All the- uh, I was just I was just telling everybody that you potentially witnessed probably one of the largest trout in Texas caught this last week. So I was hoping maybe you can kind of divulge, uh, you know, patterns that maybe can help replicate some of our listeners get some sort of success and maybe not to that degree, but you know, and then possibly you know, what have you been seeing in the Galveston uh, area? fishing wise and you know how how you guys been doing no that um you hit the nail on the head the trout that was caught last week by phil spencer out of corpus uh was 31 and three quarter inches and uh my bogo which weighs pretty accurate showed right at 11 and a quarter pounds um the funny part to that story is maybe about 15 minutes before that phil caught the largest trout i had ever witnessed in person at nine and a half pounds and uh, when he brought that big fish in, he uh, said, man, come look at this fish. This fish is bigger. And I just kept casting. I wasn't paying a lot of attention to what he was doing, but he would not stop telling me to come over. And, and I understood why when I saw that fish. And we spent about 15 minutes going back and forth on the health of that fish and uh, what it had been for in the fight. And it was caught in upper 40-degree water. So we were having problems reviving that fish. And after about 15 minutes of debate, it, it turned into a mounting situation. So uh, I know a lot of people asked if that fish was CPR, and it wasn't CPR, but the discussion that we had was would it survive after the release, and after a while we both agreed that it did not. Um, but the pattern that that fish was caught under is the exact same pattern that's been going on here in Houston. Uh, Galveston Bay area, if you will. And basically what it is is it's a mud shell flats that are adjacent to deeper water drop-offs. Um, that fish was caught on a long cast across the channel, bringing it across the channel, um, you know, dropping down into maybe seven feet of water. But the sides of the channel were really, really muddy, really, really soft, lots of shell, not a lot of opportunity to move around there. Um, and that's basically you know, what, what's being said here in, in Houston as well, it's, it's really turned into a mud shell bite over the last couple of weeks. Yeah, I've been noticing that a lot of the reports that you're seeing on Texas kayak fishermen or even too cool fishing, a lot of these guys are uh, they're fishing over that scattered shell mud areas with a real fast transition to a deep water source. And, you know, they're you know, you got some guys that are catching them on some of those maniac mullets. You've got some of the guys that are using the old standby corkies. And, and I know a lot of you, I know, like, uh, some of you guys on your fishing team, on Team Ocean Kayak, they uh, they like those Neurodyne XLs uh, as well. So, I mean, you know, what, 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 in your opinion, is probably one of the more successful trout catching lures at this time of year? Well, it's the same thing that they've got in common is that they're just suspending plugs. Um, but this year, it really seems like the hot bait has been a Miradine XL that's got an all-silver body with a green, chartreuse green kind of back. Um, the water this year is just, I mean, that's the big problem that people are running into. This is, I've lived in Galveston area for 10 years, and this is the cleanest I've ever seen the water. And it looks like you're fishing somewhere down south, Aransas, you know, really, really clean water. So the focus this year has been a lot smaller baits, a lot more translucent braids, baits, brighter baits. Um, you know, but in years past, you know, some of the best fishermen that I know, they're religious. And I do under that's a real big profile. In- yeah. Still there? Now that we lose Clint? We might have lost Clint, or he got lost in reception. Uh, we'll see if he'll rectify that on his end in a little bit. But, yeah, that's, 
to expand on what he was saying, I mean, Clearwater, I mean, I, I've fished in Clearwater uh, in the Galson area around the Confederate Reef area, and we've always had some some fairly decent success whenever we do run into water like that. But the thing that you gotta you got to keep in mind is just, you know, trout green water isn't necessarily always going to equate into trout. I mean, I, I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions people run into. And because there's a lot of key factors that kind of go into that, you know, tidal movements and, you know, the presence of bait. And that's one thing when I'm looking for, when I'm looking for trout in the, in the Bay Area is I'm, I'm looking for, you know, telltale signs. So one of the things that I'll, I want to key on is if I want to find some uh, some water that's holding bait and not just mullet that are jumping randomly out of the water. I want, I'm want i looking for an area that's got some real random bait jumping. I mean, they're, they're jumping all over the place. There's no pattern, no rhyme or reason why they're jumping. There's something in the water there that's got them riled up. So right there, that automatically tells you that there's probably predator fish in the area. And so then after that, it's just a matter of tying on the right lure and finding how they want it work. Because wintertime, that's always, that's always, you know, bigger baits, maybe sometimes even smaller baits like Clint said. I'm always traditionally throwing a, like a quirky fat boy. And I'm throwing it way out there, and I'm letting it sink really, really slow. And, like, the rule of thumb is, uh, rule of thumb is, is if you're thinking you're working it slow, then slow it down again. Now, of course, you got to be kind of careful with, you know, hooking the bottom and whatnot. But now, I've, I've seen you have success, Andrew, with with corkies, and it wasn't even necessarily in, in trout green water. And you caught a you caught a fatty. It was like it was, it was last fall, wasn't it? Yeah, that was last. Yeah, that was last fall. This whole year, though, with like he, you know, a different bait altogether. But you know, something with a silver bottom corky has been killing it for me every time I've gone fishing this year. Uh, I don't know if it's just the water clarity or what, but, you know, that's, and that, you're, you're right. And it's all because you can control the speed a little more with the corking than you can some of these other baits. So I've noticed I can do multiple, I can fish multiple ways with one bait. So I don't know, that's why I've been, that's my go-to bait this year. Yeah. It, I haven't had a chance to go down and, do any any trout fishing yet this year since i moved to austin it's kind of it's it's a little bit more difficult but I'm, i really want to get down there and get down there with clint and vincent and sam and all those guys on team ocean kayak and i really want to you know keep rounding out my my trout tactics like those are guys that they've got they go for get more knowledge than i'll ever learn and uh well it looks like we're not going to get clint back he just texted me back so but yeah i mean cold water cold water fishing it's a whole other beast and you know a lot of people you know they hang their rods and reels up in the in the winter and they're and they're done they they take their kayak they put it on their wall and they that's their it's the time of year for them to clean it up and do all that other junk but i, I in my opinion winter if they're doing all that you know they're skipping on some of the more rewarding times of the year for bigger fish um big trout are always during the wintertime. I'm not saying they can't be caught during the summer, but all of your big heavy trout, they're usually caught during the winter. And you can even, and even when you're out there on those, those, those traditional trout spots, there's a lot of redfish that usually get mixed in, in those areas too, and they'll key in on the same bait that you're throwing as well. Uh, now, if you go and particularly just target redfish, you know, you, you, you might find a little bit differently. You might go find like a really deep marsh drain, but typically the same pattern holds, just like Clint said. You're going to want to fish uh, flats that are, they have really quick access to that deeper water. And I don't know about you, Andrew, but deeper water to me has always been a drop-up from, say, like a flat of two foot going all the way down to maybe eight or nine feet. And it could be deeper. I mean, it just depends on kind of what you're dealing with, but, you know, where we were, you know, Andrew, where you were fishing with that that corky that one time, you were probably fishing off of that bulkhead wall. It was it was two foot deep and transitioned down to about six feet, wouldn't you say? Yeah, and fast. Yeah, it was a fast yeah. drop off, right? Yeah. So, so you know, and then some of those, some of the other areas I like to paddle around to is uh, I'll I'll 
I'll watch my boat and I'll try to find bulkheads uh, early in the morning before the sun rises and let that sun heat up that wall and those fish will congregate by the wall in some in certain areas and you can you can really start picking them off because they'll sit there and they want to sun themselves and warm up with that, that concrete and it starts soaking up all that sunlight really early in the morning and that's going to be the most direct sunlight it gets all day instead of just beating straight down on top of it. So those walls, those faces, that, that can be a good spot for people to try. Uh, there's numerous amounts of boat slips all up and down the Texas coast that are like that. So, I mean, it's worthwhile for people to go. It's typically a really short paddle. And in the wintertime, you, you know, most people don't want to go those longer distances. But it's all right. I mean, it, I paddle the longer distance because I don't like to be around a lot of people. But, and that, that's but the positive of a kayak, so you can do that. You know, you can go someplace where it's a short paddle to a good fishing spot, or there's a day, you know, you can, like we've done before, you can paddle, you know, 14-plus miles to get to another spot, so. Right, right. Yeah, and it's the willingness, uh, I mean, the willingness of the paddler is really going to dictate, you know, your fishing location. That's why, you know, if you're new, Google Earth can be your friend. Look on there. Try to find some of those uh, when I say deep water, you can be, you know, maybe a flat right off the intercoastal waterway. So go ahead and find something like that. You can look on Google Earth, and most of the time you can kind of tell where a flat is because it won't be that, you know, in Texas if you're looking, say, at like, you know, just say you're looking at Cold Pass area by the San Luis, by, by San Luis Pass. Cold Pass will be a real dark green, rich color on the on the Google Earth, but then you'll see like little brown areas off on the sides. Those typically kind of dictate where your flats will be. It's not necessarily true all the time because Google Earth can change, but it'll kind of give you a, a rough estimation of where a flat could be. And a flat's nothing but just you know a, a real shallow area of water that can go from anywhere from two to four feet. So, but if definitely want to find your mud and your shell, that's going to be holding the heat uh, this time of year. Um, so, and then throw your Mirodines and work them real slow. And that's always been key for me. But top waters, too. I, I forgot about that. I'm, I don't know if you throw much top water. I do, yeah, I just feel, I kind of uh, hope Clint can come back on again because that guy's wealth of knowledge. All, most of those ocean kayak pro staff guys are young, know, and they're willing to share spots and techniques, which a lot of you know, a lot of fishermen aren't willing to do. So, if there's ever, right. anyone ever has an opportunity to see them doing a seminar somewhere or if we get one of them on here again, they're always a good lesson because they're willing to teach, which, you know, is not always the case. Right. Well, you know, speaking of Team Ocean Kayak, you know, the, the, the guy we're going to have on here in a little bit, you know, Jeff Herman, he was on Team Ocean Kayak, and uh, now he's on Jackson Kayak's pro staff. Uh, he taught me, uh, he showed me a couple of spots uh, where, you know, kind of like I would never have thought about fishing in colder weather and, you know, these deeper potholes, fishing with smaller baits and just bouncing jig heads off the bottom in areas I never would have even thought, thought about doing that. Uh, that we, we had quite a bit of success that day, and he was actually shooting photographs for uh, for a magazine article he uh he contributes uh, to a publication for. And, you know, Jeff, not only is he a member of Team Ocean, or uh, not Team Ocean, Jackson Pro Staff, uh, Will, uh, Werner Paddles, he also is a contributing writer and photographer for Kayak Fish Magazine, which is a new publication on the market that's really starting to get ground. I see a lot of people using those, uh, it, or reading that magazine. It's a really cool magazine. It, it, it's focused completely on kayak fishing, in a in a really focused manner. I, have you ever had a chance to pick up that publication, Andrew? Yeah, Jeff has dropped off a couple there at the store, so I don't know whether he's trying to show his good work or if he's just trying to get us into the magazine. But we've got to feel him in the him at the store. I mean, he, he's so vain, you know. Just, yeah, he's got know. all his pictures. He likes to show off. So well, it's always about Jeff. without much. Be- <laughs> Without much ado, let's go ahead and bring Jeff in here. Looks like he's calling in. What's Jeff, happening, boys? 
Uh, great, man. Thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate it. No, thanks. Pleasure's all ours, man. Uh, just looking forward to getting a little information pulled out of you and hopefully it helps some of our listeners with some stuff. Uh, but, you know, so I've known you for a little while, and I never really truly understood where you even got into kayak fishing, man. I mean, it's just kind of like, hey, I'm Jeff, and I kayak. That's all I ever knew. Well, it's a long and embarrassing story, uh, and I'll actually tell it on the radio. Uh, sadly, I wrote I actually wrote about this in an article that was submitted to the Drake magazine. Uh, it's a fly fishing magazine, and I really thought they were going to publish it, but it, it never got published. But the true story is I got into fly, fish, or, uh, to fly fishing in college a little bit, and uh, I had a roommate named Jason Grace, and Jason Grace was uh, your your standard Texas good old boy, and he called me up one time, and he was like, Herman, we're going to the coast, you know, we're going to take our fishing to the next level, uh, you're going to dig this, and I was like super excited about it, I thought this was going to be great, so uh, he shows up in his Isuzu pickup, and he's got two float tubes, yeah, you heard me right, I said float tubes, um, and so, hey, where are we going, Jason, he says we're going to <laughs> <laughs> go to San Luis Pass. So, I mean, first of all, imagine two guys in a float tube under, with a shark swimming underneath. I can just think about that shark looking up at those legs like, my God, that's the best-looking frog I've ever seen in my life. We're going to oh, eat like king. So, anyway, yeah, so we took two float tubes, not knowing what we were doing to San Luis Pass, and uh, we, go, we go out and literally like you know how you can see the channels at San Luis Pass where they get like darker colored water it goes from like light green to like this deep dark green where the channel drops off well as I know now and most people know that the channels you know they concentrate the the speed of the water well Jason was in his float tube a few feet ahead of me and he hits that first channel and man he goes off like a rocket he was headed to Cuba and it was at about that point that I realized this was a terrible idea and started kicking frantically back to shore. Uh, so I made it back to the sand. Jason made it back to the sand. And uh, we kind of sat there huffing and puffing on the sand, looking at each other, laughing, thinking, my God, we'll never do that again. And uh, I, after that, I was like, I'm done with saltwater fishing. And then like a month later, Jason called me again. He's like, Jeff, we're going to take our fishing to the next level, man. I've got it this time, kayaks. And at that point, I actually did a little research before I jumped into the Suzu with him and uh, was convinced that it was a good idea. And that was probably, um, I don't know, 2000, 2001, I mean, a long time ago. But uh, So he took a tarpon, I think the original tarpon 160, and I had a, a perception, um, what were they called? A perception, uh, not the illusion. The before the illusion. Yeah, yeah. The prism? So, um, the prism, yeah, so... Those were the first two kayaks ever paddled with a tarpon in a prism. Some classic boats, man. It was. It was. It was a good way to get into it. The the float tube story is is true. Um, and the uh, the next time we went out, it was in kayaks and just way more successful, obviously, and way more fun. So. Right. Well, I was I was telling everybody a little bit ago. You know, like you, we, I had the opportunity to go out with you a while back and do some. Uh, it was a long time ago. I, I, can't remember when it was, but we had a we had the opportunity to go and do some some cold water fishing, and you know you really kind of helped me focus in on an area that I never really would have thought of right off of the bat, and it was kind of a real deep pothole that that was off of the ICW or the intercoastal, and you know kind of marched its way back towards Marsh Lakes, you know, but uh. You know, so, I mean, is that typically a, an area in the, during the winter that you like to key on, or is there is there any other, like, kind of specific structure or type yeah. of that that you focus in on? Yeah, I mean, people always have different opinions as to what the best successful spot is for winter fishing. Um, and I always think that, you know, if you've got scattered shell and, and maybe a, a water column that might have some warmer areas in it, little deeper areas with warmer water, you can just be more successful. There's a higher probability that there might be a little bit of bait around, and then you have a higher probability of having a game fish in there. Um, you know, so potholes are, are something, you know, any time of year I like, especially in the winter, the deeper potholes are just a, a good way to pick up fish. 
um, and something I certainly, you know, like right now, if I didn't have a, a spot in mind looking at a topographical map where you can see those deeper those deeper holes back in the bay, it's always a good good way to go check stuff out and, and maybe pull out a fish. Yeah, that's just what it seemed like. Is, you know, and you schooled me there. I mean, you schooled me for like the first 20 fish. You pulled fish after fish after fish, and I couldn't believe it. Actually, it came down to you're using that, that weighted flutter hook. And I, yeah, ever since then, man, ever since then, I don't think I would leave them out of my tackle box. And I was always a firm believer of either, you know, weedless, weightless, or jig head with a with it buried with the bar buried into the body of the plastic, but ah man, it you changed it. That's it's it's like it's like bass fishing in saltwater. It changed it changed the way I perceived that kind of fishing for a long time. Right, and, and the other thing about those holes too, if you find something like next to a marsh or next to you know an open area of the bay where it starts to concentrate, is you get better water movement there. So if you find potholes adjacent to the marsh, adjacent to um, a drain, I mean that's always going to be money. Um, and the, that particular one you're talking about just has so much shell around it that those those flutter hooks um, and like a, a weedless version of them just works so much better because you don't hang up on the rock and shell as much uh, and can get after those fish a little bit that way. Yeah, I lost quite a quite a few dollars that day. It's kind of disappointing. Yeah, well, well, yeah, I've done the, I, I did the same a few times to fish in that spot, so I, I knew going in I'd wreck that car before. So <laughs> yeah, and you're, you're going, you were thinking to yourself, I'm not going to tell this newbie anything because I'm just going to watch him lose all his gear. <laughs> Well, that's not it. I just I, once I hung a fish, I'd have been willing to share with you, man. But you you were going at it. Yeah. I knew I knew that you you knew what you were doing a little bit. So come on. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's all right. I, I try to do the same thing to Andrew whenever we go. It's it's not a big deal. But then he busts out a quirky and pulls out a fat three and a half pound trout to my sixty four rat reds. So. Nice. job, bait fish. Yeah, I remember that. I mean, you caught a lot of bait fish in Florida, and you did a fantastic job. If it yeah, wasn't for you, I would never caught a bait fish. Next topic. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, so, man, you were you were pro staff by Ocean Kayak for a really long time. That's how I came to know you. And right. now you're now you're with Jackson Kayak. How how's that transition been? And if you know what what kind of boat are you piloting nowadays? I mean, what is what's your focus on? Um, well, you know, uh, the, the story is I was actually focused, uh, uh, I was actually pro, uh, on pro staff with Cobra Kayaks for two, about two days before I was pro staff with Ocean. And then Ocean for, I mean, almost 10 years. And then, yeah, I went to Jackson just this last year. The, uh, the boats now that, that I'm paddling, um, the Cuda is just this nice stand-up, um, super stable platform. It's great for fly fishing. The deck layout on it, I think, is probably one of the coolest deck layouts ever. And, I mean, the seating on it is fantastic. I think you've seen where the market's gone with the comfortable seating and the high seating. I think most of the manufacturers are trying to imitate what Jackson did with the high seating. Um, but, I mean, it's a super stable boat. It's not super fast. So the Cuda is my bay boat on a, on any day when there's, there's good wind. Um, the flip side of that is I've always liked deck to kayak. I'm one of those crazy people that likes to, to be in a Ferrari or a fast kayak. So I also fish out of a Jackson Journey, uh, which is a deck sea kayak. Um, but it's super fast and super fun to paddle. Um, so if you got a if you got a trout hole that's two miles out from the launch, it's not something that you sweat or worry about. Uh, I'll probably still complain about it, but, you know, I can get there without, without too much effort uh, in that sea kayak. Um, super excited about that. Uh, it's a fun way to fish. In the winter, it's a warm way to fish um, because you've got that deck over your lap. You don't get paddle splash. You don't get uh, splash from the fish you're catching. You don't get waves crashing on you. Uh, and it's just a nice way to, to, to get out on the water. Looking forward to the Kraken coming up here in a year or so, uh, nine, nine months to a year. That will be fun. But um, until then, it's the CUDA and the journey for sure. Uh like I like I said last week, I've been eyeballing that crack and, and any any piece of information I can get on it, it's like I can just soak it up like a sponge because really got me. Now, you are one of the few people that I 
that I personally know that fish from a sit-in side. Now, I know it's not an uncommon thing, but in Texas, it really is. It's, yes. It's not something that you just drop down to the local launch and see three or four sit-in side guys loading up and get ready to go hit the water. Because, you know, a lot of these guys, the way that they, they rig, you can't really do that on a sit-in side boat. So, I mean, what what would you say besides, you know, like some of the things that you, you covered there, I mean, do you really gain much more in a sit-in side, or is it really kind of dependent upon the paddler? Well, you know, it's not it's not necessarily just the sit-in side. I'll, I'll say this one about skinny boats in general. Um, on a on a sit-in side or a skinny boat, the one thing you gain is control, um, directional control with your body weight as you paddle. Um, and that doesn't sound like a big deal, but if you are paddling for a mile or two miles, or you're paddling even a half mile in a big crosswind, it can make a huge difference. Um, what you can do in a sit-inside kayak is instead of having to worry about a rudder or anything, you can basically shift body weight. Like if I'm paddling along with a quartering wind that's blowing left to right, I can just lean over to the right, and instead of having to paddle stroke all in one side, drop run, and introduce drag, I just change my body weight and kind of change the water line of the kayak to compensate for that windage, uh, and you can keep paddling straight. So you just save a ton of energy. Um, Aside from that, um, I've also always felt like, you know, the sitting side or the skinnier kayak, um, once you learn stability in it, um, and it's what I call being hippie in a boat, using your hips to just move back and forth as the water moves you, it's as safe and as stable as some of the the bigger boats in the sense that you're just using body control and body weight to maintain your stability. Um, and it's learned. It's like learning to ride a bike, except it's way faster. I think if you put anybody in a skinnier boat and they go out for a day, they can learn to be really comfortable in it and really get the benefit of being in that more maneuverable platform than uh, the big, giant, wide boats. And again, don't get me wrong, I love the big wide boats. I love standing up and fly fishing out of a CUDA. Um, they're, they're fun. They're, they're a blast. And there's some great wide boats out there uh, by all the, all the manufacturers. The Ride by Wilderness Systems. Uh, I think Ocean Kayak just reintroduced a, a new prowler with a new seat. Um, so there's a, there's a ton of great options out there in wide boats. But um, as far as paddleability and actually just being connected with your boat, um, skinnier is better. There's just no way about it, no two ways about it. Yeah, can't say that. Yeah, that's a giving you a little props here. Calling that a sit inside really isn't showing what you're really doing. That's a sea kayak. I mean, that is that is a narrow boat. You're not talking about a wide recreational sit inside that you're that you're fishing out of. So that's impressive. Yeah. No. I mean, um, I think so. My per- from where I started from in the Perception Prism, which was a ridiculously round bottom boat. I mean, it had, you know, initial stability and that thing was almost non-existent. It did have some decent secondary stability, but I mean, you sat in that original Prism and it just, you know, you lean right, the boat went right. Um, and then I went from that to a Scupper Pro basically as my primary boat. So, I mean, to me, skinny boats are, are what kayaking is. And, you know, the, the wider the boat's got, you, you I, the more I was just like, wait a second, it loses so much from a paddle, paddle ability standpoint. Don't get me wrong, fish ability is there. And I love, like I said, I, I keep coming back to this, standing up and fly fishing out of a, out of a nice, stable boat is a wonderful thing, and it's a great thing to have. Uh, tarpon I just caught recently in, in Puerto Rico. I wouldn't want to do that in a 25-inch wide boat. Um, but uh, as far as general paddle ability and get out on the water. Um, they're just fun, and you can redfish and trout fish and flounder fish, fish from them all day long. That's really cool, man. Yeah, like, like Andrew said, big props on that. Now, now I, I have been, I've been meaning to talk. I haven't seen you in a while, and I've been wanting to sit down and, you know, have a beer with you and talk about your Puerto Rico trip that you did with, uh, with Jim Salmons filming for the kayak fishing show. Uh, now, if I'm not mistaken, you guys are down there for tarpon, correct? Yeah, we went down there solely to to hit the tarpon uh, and expected to catch just a, a ton of them over the course of uh, five days on the water with Caribbean Outfitters and the legendary Omar. Man, yeah, no, now, that that was not from a sit inside. No, no, not at all. And, uh, <laughs> we went down. 
we went down there expecting to catch some really big fish and a bunch of them, and uh, we got down there um, right after this really weird algae bloom and then this really huge rain that put a bunch of fresh water into the lagoon and just sent the bait fish somewhere else, and then the tarpon just got locked jaw. Um, so we worked really, really hard. Um, we got lucky on the first day and saw some rolling, rolling fish, and I mean a lot of rolling fish, um, but we couldn't get them to bite uh, for the early, on the early morning. And then that afternoon, we, uh, I finally jumped one on an artificial, which was fun, you know, I mean, just exciting. Um, and it was a, a big fish, and when he came up out of the water for the first time, he threw me uh, without much effort. We worked really hard for like two or three days in without a fish, and then finally, um, I think it was the third or fourth day, we jumped one. Uh, he broke my knot. It was a knot failure, just really bummed out because um, it was another good fish. Um, and then later that day, just on dead bait, we'd stuck out a bunch of dead bait. We were dead sticking, like, not the most exciting way to fish, but at that point we wanted to get a fish on film, and uh, he hit just a dead bait stick, uh, picked it up, and it was uh, off to the races. I think it took about 40 minutes, and he weighed about 70, 75 pounds. Um, it was the estimate, Omar's estimate on the fish. And if you've seen the picture um, and the pictures out there on Facebook and uh, the kayak fishing shows, uh, blog, I think. I mean, the fish looks like it's as big as me in the kayak. Um, so it was a hoot. It, it, was a, it was a big fish and took a lot of work, but a, a lot of fun. Yeah, I, that's one of the, the bucket list fish I've got. I've, I've specifically targeted them off of Gallatin's beachfront. I've done uh, the paddle in Port O'Connor and past Cavallo for them, and they still elude me. I've hooked six and lost all six. It's yeah. It's it's, it's really a, it's a, really hard to do. It's another thing entirely. Um, we were so happy at that point to land a fish, just because we'd been working so hard to try to get a tarpon. So uh, we got that one, and then uh, the next day, salmon's like at the eleventh hour pulled one. It was the 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 total Houdini fish. Literally, we're we're about an hour away from the sun going down on the last day of filming, and the host of the TV show hadn't landed a tarpon. He had caught some other small fish, but he hadn't got a tarpon, which is the whole point of the show. Um, and as the sun was going down, we were kind of rafted up, you know, together, and uh, his rod went off. And I've seen salmons look excited about a fish, but I've never seen salmons look this excited. I mean, he was just jacked that his rod had gone off and he had a big tarpon on there. Uh, and he fought it, landed it, and uh, let's just say the rum tasted a whole lot better that night because if, if the host <laughs> of the TV show would have caught a fish... That would have been a, a pretty a pretty long ride home. Yeah, there's really no photoshopping a tarpon catch into the show, so no, no, and no doubt, and, no doubt, that Jim could have pulled it out. Absolutely. So, well, you so also Jeff, do all the trips you've done. Like, where does that rank? Like between like the run to the Nile Perch, but a couple years ago, and every other trip you've done, where do you rank that? Um, I, you know, I still rank the tarpon. The tarpon's up there. I still the the two uh, the two big giant rooster fish in Baja. And the, Jaron was a part of all that. The first rooster fish, and then the second one. He actually helped land the second one. Um, that was probably the most ridiculous thing, just because they were back to back. I caught the the first rooster fish, paddled back to the boat to get rebaited, and literally, li- li- I still smoked back then. So I got rebaited. I lit a cigarette and was paddling away from the boat and had, like, a drag off the cigarette. And I went from, a, I think it was probably a 45- or 50-pound rooster to a 65- or 70-pound rooster um, that fast. Um, anybody who's caught rooster fish, it's just insane. So it was a, a crazy adventure, and, and that's probably the, the highlight of, like, the big crazy fish were those two fish back-to-back. Very cool. Man, that is cool. Uh, like I said, it, it's it's a bucket list fish. Uh, I, I can't wait to I can't wait to get it in. You know, one day I'll 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 actually land one. But you know, until then, as the search continues. It's yeah, a never thing for me. But it's oh a well. t- it's a tough thing up on the Texas waters. But I mean, if you can get down to. Um, you know, if, if anybody ever goes to Puerto Rico, which is not that expensive when you look at, at, at trips, you know, international trips, 
and the, the guide fees aren't that bad. I mean, they have a resident population down there. It's not like you wait for the migration firm to roll through Puerto Rico. That lagoon, they say, year-round has tarpon in it. Uh, and consequently, you can get in there and throw out these things. Um, and again, they can have locked jaw like, like, you know, any time any fish can. But as far as your probability of actually landing a fish going on a tarpon trip, I can't think of a place besides Puerto Rico and those guys at Caribbean Outfitters that would do a better job of putting you on fish. It's just uh, it's almost a no-brainer down there. And we had bad conditions, so... Damn. Well, well, you know, kind of, it's not really kayak fishing related, but, you know, it, in my opinion, it, it, it kind of is. Uh, so you're also a ACA, an American Canoe Association certified paddling instructor, if I'm not, I'm correct, right? Yeah, that's correct. All right. So um, a lot of, a lot of people that go out and they paddle and they fish, you know, it, it they don't understand that you just just don't jump into a you just don't jump into a boat and start swinging your arms around. I, I, in my opinion, learning to kayak properly first before you start fishing will help you in the long run because not only will you be able to paddle longer distances, but it, you'll you won't be as spent and you can actually you know focus more time on fishing more effectively. Yeah, I mean, that's that's absolutely it. Uh, you know, one of the things I always tell people is that I didn't know how, how little I knew about paddling until I, I started the instructor curriculum and, and started going down that road to get an instructor certification. And there's a lot of it that doesn't apply, I mean, regardless of what you're uh, – Regardless of what you're doing out there as a fisherman, there's a bunch of stuff you learn as an ACA instructor that you're not going to bring to your typical kayak fishing trip. But there's a ton of information and stuff you don't even think about uh, on a daily basis that you do bring out there. Um, and first and foremost is, is a paddle skill set. Um, I can't emphasize enough how much, how much of a better paddler I am since having that instruction and stopping the, the dreaded arm paddling. Um, and there's nothing wrong with arm paddling. Everybody does it when they first start in kayaking. Um, but to actually get your, your body involved and get your core involved and paddle correctly just makes the hugest difference, um, even if it's a short trip with big wind. Um, if you're, you're paddling correctly with proper technique, you're going to have a better time out on the water. You can get to your fish faster. You get to your fish with less energy. Uh, you can spend way more time for those guys that do uh, the short rigs and BTB and stuff. You can spend way more time trolling a lure if you're paddling correctly than if you're just, you know, doing the arm paddle. So it, it makes a big difference. And I encourage anybody that has interest in, in just having a better time out on the water to look into it. Um, some classes are pretty cheap, and you'll learn a ton. You'll learn way more than you think you will. I, I can guarantee that. Well, not only just learning how to properly paddle, but then also, you know, getting you a really good paddle to go along with your uh, with your kayak. That's that's key too. I mean, you know, it may it makes yeah. a huge difference running down like the local academy and picking up a, you know, nothing against Carlisle paddles, but picking up a thirty six ounce Carlisle Magic Plus paddle and then going over to a, a an actual retail shop and seeing the full gamut of the higher end paddles like. Werner, you know, I, I personally I paddle with a bent shaft Werner Ikelos. So that 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 that's one of my money paddles, and it's it's really changed the way I paddle because I'm naturally a high angle paddler, and it, it just that style of paddle fits me best. And you know, you're you're uh, you're with the Werner team. Um, you know, what, what's your thoughts on a really good paddle, say, for the novice kayaker jumping in, but, you know, not necessarily like the, the lowest end, but maybe, you know, like in the composite material side? Right. I think uh, Warner has done a really good job with addressing that. Uh, this last year they came out with their hook series, uh, and there's two paddles specifically. They have carbon shaft with glass blades. So you get a light paddle. It's got low swing weight but it's got a really stiff blade so you don't get cavitation as you pull it through the water. Um, and they make two styles. They have a Kamino, um, which is kind of a, for the lower angle paddler. It's more of a touring blade. Um, if you guys, uh, if somebody's in the bay and they're going to paddle a ton of distance, it's a, a really good paddle to look at. 
and then they have the Shuna in the Hook series, which is a bigger blade, kind of more designed for that high-angle paddler, uh, the power paddler, if you're going to do the BTB stuff or if you just have a, a high-angle stroke where you, you've got that more vertical paddle shaft through your forward stroke, um, the Shuna is one to look at. But the hook, they have this really cool fish, uh, kind, of, it's kind of like a fish scale pattern on the blade, which looks really sexy. But, again, most importantly, it's low swing weight, uh, the highest quality material and craftsmanship, uh, handmade in, in Washington, and uh, just you can't go wrong with those paddles. I don't just say that as a, as a sponsored fisherman. I think anybody who picks up a Warner paddle and then picks up, um, you know, most of the other models that, that are going to be sitting next to it, you can feel the quality just by picking it up. Uh, the materials, the handmade craftsmanship. It just goes a long way. And, I, again, I don't say that as a sponsored fisherman. I think anybody touching those paddles can see the quality and see the value in them. Um, and one of the things I, I always tell people when they, when they get into kayaking as a, when I do these seminars, one of the things I always say is you need to buy the kayak that fits you, the kayak that you want to paddle for the type of fishing you do, but you also want to buy the most paddle that you can afford. Um, it doesn't do any good to buy a $1,000 kayak and then go buy a $20, $30 paddle at Academy. That's like putting a four-cylinder Yugo engine inside a Ferrari. It makes no sense. So if you're going to spend the money on a quality kayak, make sure you spend the money on a quality paddle, whether that's Warner or a competitor, Bending Branches or Aquabound or whoever it is, spend the money on a decent paddle. Hey, Jeff, you mentioned something. Can you, can you explain this real quick? You mentioned swing weight. Can you explain to those of us that don't know the difference between swing weight and the actual weight of the paddle just real quick? Um, Andrew, I know that you know the answer to that, so why don't you drop that knowledge on the, on the people listening for us? <laughs> all, right, well, oh, all right, thank you. So anyway, so on the paddle, you know, when you look on you go to a, into a retail shop, you'll see 36-ounce paddle, 32-ounce paddle, 27-ounce paddle. And, you know, usually an associate, you'll pick it up and kind of grab it like it's a stick and shake it, and only I feel it's light. But when Jeff is referring to swing weight, he's actually talking about the weight out on the blades. So if you just sit there and turn it, you know, parallel to the ground, move the blade back and forth from the side, you can actually feel the weight out on the paddle blades. That's, that's the difference maker with the, with the high-end paddle towards, you know, just like your basic, like Jeremy saying, a Carlisle paddle is. All your weight is out on the end. You're just using a lot of energy to stop that blade and get it back up. And anyway, that, I think that's an important part of it, not just the weight of the paddle. Everyone looks at weights, and they get lost in that. Yeah, I, it, it, it's very true. I, could, I, I couldn't I, have I, done that better, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Jeff. Uh, well, Jeff, I really gotta, I really gotta thank you for coming on tonight, man. Uh, it's, it's been a pleasure to have you on here again. Good to talk to you again. And next time I'm down in Houston, we definitely gotta hit the water because I am jonesing for some saltwater fishing, man. Absolutely, please. And Andrew, let's go fish uh, between now and then so we can send him pictures and make him jealous, man. Absolutely. I hate hey, both of you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me, guys. I enjoy the show, and I'll be listening next week. All right, appreciate it, Jeff. We'll talk to you later. Thanks, guys. Bye. Well, Jeremy, about out of time. We're about out of time, but just I just kind of want to I want a teaser possibly for next week. Uh, Got a pretty big guest lined up for the show, and I'm really really excited about it because he's. And in my in in my eyes, he's kind of you know the godfather of offshore kayak fishing. I don't know if you know who I'm talking about, but next week we'll have Jim Salmons on the show, and we're going to be talking all things offshore kayak fishing. Uh, it's my bread and butter. I like that a lot, and uh, Jim is the authority on that matter. So uh, for anybody who wants to tune in next week. Uh, to Yak Fishing Texas, I definitely recommend tuning in next Tuesday, 8 p.m., Kayak Fishing Radio over on Blog Talk Radio, right where we're at right now. We'll have Jim Sammons from the Kayak Fishing Show on the show. So uh, if you guys like, you know, feel free during the show to join in the chat. Uh, you can type live questions. We're going to go ahead and get uh, everybody questions we can we can ask in live on the show so 
kind of, kind of, you know, keep it interactive, keep it fun, keep Jim off of his toes. So, uh, should have got some inside information from Jeff. On what? Just ask, ask him some questions. Throw, throw him off a little bit. Ah, ah, yeah, that's all right. But yeah. well, again. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in for the second edition of Yak Fishing Texas. I am Darren Wassel, uh, joined by Andrew, my friend. Uh, we will be back at it next week, 8 p.m. on Tuesday, with Jim Sammons on the show. So make sure you tune in, and uh, everybody be well and tight lines.